continuing in our series, God Uses People, there is a recurring theme in all these sermons, and that was really unintentional on my part. God uses people. Surprise. And he uses everybody. And in every minister knows this, that in every church, there are people that are consistently good, and then there are people that are consistently not good, and then there are some people, and this is almost a bell curve thing, and those of us in the middle, that sometimes we're good. I mean, sometimes we can be counted on, sometimes we make the right choices, sometimes, you know, we're faithful. So today we're going to talk about one of the good guys, and he really wasn't all that good. And we're going to find that out. First Kings chapter 3 and chapter 9. So open those two chapters if you would. We'll look at them and spend some time in them. And talking about King Solomon. As always we'll pray. As we've already done. Praying for those families of lost loved ones. And praying for our culture. We're just. Uh, I, I don't fear for my future. You know, I'm old. You know, I've passed that age where I worry about a whole lot of things. Like many of you. But I do worry about. All those young people, anybody under 65, you know, my kids and my grandkids and what kind of world are they going to be in and all those kinds of things. My, my granddaughters will turn 14 this year and she's going to be one of those leggy blondes that everybody looks at. And I just cringe at the kind of world that my leggy blonde granddaughter, and they're all going to be leggy blondes actually, and, and the guy, and he's going to be a leggy redhead. You know, and I just wonder and worry about them because of the world that we live in. It's a... It's a scary place and they travel and I just want them to stay home if they travel they can drive to my farm and stay there and that's far enough for them you know they don't listen to me of course but some of you understand what I'm talking about because it, it's just not a safe place I, I do fear for our culture I had this conversation with my daughter the one who went to Vietnam last year and of course Vietnam was a communist country, a, a really beautiful place full of good people that have pretty good lives. And even though it's a communist country and there is a heavy police presence everywhere, everywhere, she says there is absolutely no fear because the bad guys are disappeared. And that's a verb, they are disappeared. And so a lot of the things that we have in this culture just don't happen there. And it, I guess that's that tension between extreme freedom and extreme tyranny. And God wants us to have freedom, but at the same time, there has to be a sense of responsibility to handle freedom well. And I'm afraid we're losing that. So pray for our people. For our first responders. Join me in prayer, please. Father, again, we come before you with concerns on our heart and mind. We come knowing that you have created us with intelligence and wisdom and choices. And we grieve because so many use what they've been given for evil. Forgive us, Father, collectively as a people. We've failed our young ones in some way. We ask for mercy. 
We ask for guidance that those who have power over us, elected and unelected, would be able to guide and direct us to do good things, to change the way we think, to change the way we handle the frustrations of this life. We pray for those first responders, policemen, doctors, nurses, EMT workers, even court servers. Protect them, Father. We pray for our younger generations for protection, for peace. We pray that they somehow would be able to change what we have messed up. Give us wisdom. Help us as a people to recognize that the truths in Scripture and the wisdom that you can give, the wisdom that Solomon prayed for, could make a difference. Thank you, Father, for the life that we do have in this land, a mix of good and evil. We have it good, and we know that. Thank you. We pray for those lands around us that don't have it so good. Israel, Palestine, Syria, the African peoples. It seems that we struggle. Help us. Father, help us to learn from Solomon this idea of wisdom. Help us to learn from his goodness. Help us to learn from his mistakes. And we pray, Father, for the strength of your spirit that can guide us each day. Thank you, Father, for loving us and for giving us hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Like I said, God uses people. He uses good people. And there are good people out there. But there are many perfect people. I know sometimes we're surprised we'll find out somebody that we thought was good and they do something that where they've obviously stumbled making a mistake and we go, well that surprises me that he or she would do that. And then I ask myself, well why should I be surprised? This is what people do. Even good people fall. And so in the story of Solomon, we're going to see that. But the first, we're going to, first video that we're going to watch is, gives us an idea of what one who is good can do to bring peace on this earth. Debbie? Where the sun beats down and the winds are harsh, there lived a man whose name resonated with wisdom and grandeur. King Solomon, son of the legendary King David, was a man of great repute renowned for his refined tastes for wealth, astuteness, and his masterful construction of the majestic first temple in Jerusalem. In the eyes of many, he was considered the epitome of sagacity, and his fabled reputation for dispensing equitable and unbiased decisions earned him great deference and devotion. It was during his reign that two women gave birth within days of each other. The women lay nursing their newborns each mother cradling her bundle of joy. Days passed and the cold hand of fate intervened. One child drew its last breath and its mother wept for the life snatched from her bosom. And we twisted her heart and in the dead of night, she crept into the chambers of the other mother and with foul intent exchanged her own child with the living one. As morning dawned and the cruel deed was revealed, 
The bereaved mother pleaded with King Solomon for justice, and the fate of the children lay in the hands of the wise king. As the court proceedings began, the tension in the room was palpable. Two women stood before King Solomon, each claiming to be the mother of a baby. The infant lay sleeping in a cradle at the center of the room, a tiny symbol of the life and death decision that was about to be made. As the first woman stepped forward, her eyes welled up with tears and her voice trembled with emotion. I am the mother of this child and the bond between us is divine, woven together by the threads of fate. Every moment of his life, I have nurtured and cherished him, but in the dark of the night, the other woman, blinded by envy and malice, snatched him from my embrace and claimed him as her own. The second woman retorted with an intensity that made her words sound like a curse. How dare you accuse me of such treachery? This child is rightfully mine, and I have poured out my love on him every moment since his birth. It is you who seeks to rob me of my joy. Her voice dripped with venom, and her eyes blazed with a fierce fire of defiance. King Solomon's piercing gaze darted back and forth between the two women, his keen mind analyzing every word and gesture. He understood that the authenticity of motherhood lay not in their claims, but in the intensity of the bond that transcended words. With a firm voice and unwavering command, he demanded a sword be brought before him. A gasp went up from the assembled courtiers as a guard rushed forward with a gleaming weapon. Now, if you truly are the mother of this child, you will not want to see him harmed. I will order the guard to cut him in half, and you can each have a share. The woman's countenance contorted with dread, her heart heavy with terror. Please spare the child. I beseech thee, my king, David's seed, I implore you. Do not subject him to harm. I would rather relinquish him to the other woman than have him suffer any hurtful affliction in your presence, your highness. Solomon nodded thoughtfully, then turned to the second woman. And you, do you agree to this? He asked. The woman nodded eagerly. Yes. Let it be done. Let this stupid woman know justice. At this, Solomon knew the truth. The first woman was the true mother, willing to give up her claim to the child rather than see him hurt. The second woman, in contrast, was willing to harm the child rather than lose him. The infant was restored to his rightful mother, and the court erupted in applause. As the two women left the courtroom, Solomon reflected on the nature of motherhood and the depths of human love and sacrifice. Motherhood, you see, is not always a straightforward, black and white issue. It involves a myriad of emotions, sacrifices, and difficult decisions. He pondered on the desperation of a mother who has lost a child, as well as the envy and selfishness of another mother who would resort to such a heinous act. It speaks to the depth of a mother's love, as both women claimed the child as their own and were willing to fight for him. King Solomon's wisdom in unraveling the truth and restoring the child to his rightful mother is a testament to the complexity and importance of motherhood, and the need for compassion and understanding in dealing with its challenges.
Quite a story really, isn't it? Just one of the many stories out of Solomon's life. You've heard that story. It's always told as an example of the kind of wisdom that God gave Solomon. It was a big show. You know that Solomon was king, son of David and Bathsheba. Known for wisdom already. Became famous for that. We're going to talk more about that. And in this instance, which was not at the very beginning, but early on in his ministry as king, it occurred. And, and people heard about this story. This is the story that went all over the world. If you've looked at a map, you recognize that the Palestinian region is at the intersection of all the interstates. And if you, can, you can find those overlays online if you'd like and see where those roadways went through. And they always went through the same place. And they went through the Palestinian region. And so if you traveled in the ancient world, you went through Palestine. And it wasn't called Palestine at the time. It was just Israel. And it wasn't even called that. It was just that part of the world. And so everybody that traveled heard that story, particularly in Solomon's lifetime, because when people have a good king or a good leader, they brag about it, particularly when they connect it with their God. And so the Hebrew people did, and they bragged about it. So everybody heard this story. Everybody was impressed. He was wise, and he became known for wisdom. Strangely enough, it was one of those situations that he was so smart and so observant about nature and so keen in his insight into the human condition that people would travel from all over the world just to hear him talk. I wouldn't drive very far to hear many people speak. Maybe an hour or two, but people would come from across the world to hear Solomon. In a day when travel was hard, they wanted to hear what he had to say. So let's look at his life per the format of these sermons. We're going to look at Solomon the man. And you've got to remember he was born in unusual circumstances. David and Bathsheba had a scandal. Uriah was arranged to be killed, her first husband. She married David. Their first child died. And then they had a royal wedding and all of that. And then he began his ministry. And that child that they had after that was Solomon. Smart guy. Follow along with me in chapter 3, verses 3 through 14, as we read some of the background. 1 Kings 3, beginning at verse 3. Now Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. Then Solomon said, thou hast shown great loving kindness to thy servant David, my father, according as he walked before thee in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward thee. And thou hast reserved for him this great loving kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king in place of my father David. Yet I'm but a little child. I do not know how to go in or come out. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people who cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of mine? And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. 
And God said to him, Because you've asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you or before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. So there's that story, that famous story, not of the child, but of David in his prayers. And he prays to God and God says, okay, Solomon, I love you. I want to bless you. I'll give you anything you want. And he asked for wisdom. A little bit of background in that culture, they didn't have an established court system per se. In most cultures at the time when they had kings, the king was judge and jury, executioner and all those things together. He had absolute power and you never questioned the king. He had advisors and he would keep them around and they were smart guys who would give him an idea of what were good laws and bad laws and what things need to be enforced and, and all those kinds of things. But ultimately it was up to the king and it was an exhausting job. And so the story in the video was just one of those stories that Solomon had to deal with every day. That was his job. Tammy and I have this routine conversation. What are you doing tomorrow, Kev? And I go, preacher stuff. And that covers the gamut. So I imagine this conversation between Solomon and his wife. What are you doing today, Solomon? Ah, king stuff. And it, all, it runs the gamut. Everything that a king had to do. And there was some dismission there. You know, it's going to be a long day. So when God asked him, okay, what do you really want? He said, I want to do this job well. I, I, I have the power of life and death. Help me to make good decisions. It's hard to make good decisions sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever dealt with people and you wonder, are you lying to me or not? Yeah. People come to the door and ask for help. And I hear their stories. And usually they're, they're rehearsed. And a lot of them have told this story before, whatever the story is. And I wonder, are you lying to me? Or sometimes I'm wondering, what part of your story is a lie and what part is the truth? Because people lie, particularly when they're hurting and in trouble. So when Solomon dealt with people, including the two women, he had to discern who was telling the truth and who wasn't, who cried just right, who showing on their face the truth and those kinds of things. So Solomon already knew how hard his job was. And he said, just help me. Help me to do better. So God blessed him. All right. I will give you wisdom. You will be able to discern between good and evil. You will discern between that which is true and that which is false. You will be able to make decisions that can bring about truth and justice. And sometimes you pray those same prayers, don't you? Help me to know what to do. Help me to know what is the right thing to do because sometimes the right thing to do isn't clear. So Solomon prayed for that. So on screen are some of the things that we know about Solomon, the man. He was aware of his divine calling and task. Got to remember, he came from royal lineage. King David was his daddy. He grew up hearing David 
talking about collecting materials for the temple. Remember, that was King David's dream. He wanted to build a temple for God. David wasn't perfect. You know the story of Bathsheba. He was a problem. But he got right and he was king for a long time. He wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to build the temple. And God said, no. Your kingdom will be one of war. And I'm not going to have a man of war build a temple. That's for a man of peace. So all David could do was collect materials. Gold and timber and silver and tapestries and all those kinds of things. Did that for years. And I'm sure that somewhere along the way, David said, David the king told son Solomon, this is your stuff. And God is going to want you to build the temple. Now, they had never seen the temple, had never been built. They had a tabernacle, a tent, those kinds of things. But no temple. But they wanted, they knew how important it was. To us, a temple is a building. I mean, in our New Testament theology, we understand that this is just a building. First Baptist Church isn't this building, it's you. If this building burned, First Baptist Church would continue on, wouldn't it? Without, without missing a step, because it's, it's not the building. In Old Testament theology, the building was more important than that. The building was where God dwelt. God lived there. It's God's house. You've heard people refer to churches as God's house. That's Old Testament theology. God lived, this is how they understood it, God lived in the Holy of Holies, part of the temple. And it was a special place. And when you walked into the Holy of Holies, only a priest could do that. The high priest, one day a year, and everybody else would die. They would be in the presence of God. So this was a big deal. So Solomon was taught by his daddy and by the priest that when you build the temple, this is going to be a wonderful thing. You're going to change human history. Big deal. So when he became king, he understood that he was led by God to become king. That he was led by God and chosen by God with the task and the opportunity to build this temple. It's hard for us to imagine just how important this was to him. He had heard all his life, this is what I want you to do. This is what God has called you to do. And as someone who took their faith very seriously, it was a burden. So he knew that, grew up with that. He was fair-minded and peaceable. He was already a good guy before he was king. He just was one of those good kids. He learned from his daddy's errors, or at least we thought he did. And he was a worthy king. He worked for peace and people got along with him. You would have liked Solomon. If you could just sit down and talk to him, you would like him. He was aware of sin's effects. I imagine that somewhere along the way, when Solomon became a youth or a young adult, that David, his father, explained to him his sin with Bathsheba. And I imagine the king explained, Solomon, I, I messed up. And I think that he probably explained, again, you have to imagine this situation. But David wanted his son to understand the reason we're where we are and the reason we're always at war and the reason I can't build the temple was because of what I did with your mama. We messed up. And so he grew up with that understanding of sin and its effects and how it could destroy someone's life. And it didn't necessarily mean you were going to die, but it could sure take away the edge of your joy and happiness. And one other thing. Solomon was a rock star. 
Everybody loved Solomon. He was wise and impressive and all those kinds of things. I grew up in the church and grew up reading books and hearing about different kinds of scholars. When I went to college, I kept hearing a guy about a guy named C.F.H. Henry, Carl Henry. You probably haven't ever heard the term, but he was a scholar of another generation. He died in the 90s, in his 90s. So, uh, you know, get, that gives you the generation. And I've got his books, and I read his books in college, in the seminary, and I studied him and all those kinds of things. And one morning, this is when I lived in Rolla, he was going to be in a small college several hours away. And my staff guy at the time, my youth director, said, hey, you know who's going to be there? Who? CFH. I said, seriously? So we planned. We got up and left at 3 in the morning and drove four hours to hear C.F.H. Henry. At the time, he was already well into his 90s. He was not a, an older, vigorous guy. He was an old guy. And he spoke like this, really slow. And we were spellbound for three hours. Everything he said was right out of his books. I don't think he said anything new that day. But he was one of those scholars that you just grew up on. Uh, you know people like that. You know, you've heard about Billy Graham and some, some others, Martin Luther King Jr., things like that. And you just wish you could get together and hear them talk. And for me, that was one of those circumstances. I got to hear this guy talk. Worth it. Worth the drive. Had trouble staying home, driving home. Worth the drive. Never forget it. So when I read his books, I still have them. I hear that voice of his. Worth it. That was Solomon. Everybody wanted to hear him talk. Good guy. God blessed him with wisdom and a voice and all those kinds of things. So he was doing the right thing in so many ways. Good guy. One of the good guys. Unfortunately, he was a man. So we go from Solomon the man to Solomon the experience. Follow along with me in chapter 9 of 1 Kings. Chapter 9. I'll read the first nine verses. Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your supplication which you've made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not like a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons shall indeed turn away from following me, and shall not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, and shall go in and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. Verse 8. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and adopted other gods, and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this adversity on them. 
So here's this message. Okay, Solomon, follow me. I will bless you. I'll make you powerful. Your kingdom will reign forever. People will look at you in history and think, wow, what a guy. But if you go after other gods, you'll suffer the consequences. So here's this conversation between God and one of his own, a man of deep faith and wisdom, a man who was highly blessed of God, and still God felt it needed to talk to him like he was imperfect, because he was. You know, the tendency is to think that these really good people have grown out of sin, and it's not true. Good people fail, don't they? Good men fall. Good women fall. And Solomon did that. Solomon built a temple, and it was wonderful, as good as everybody imagined. It was the first time they'd ever had a temple. And you can read in the Old Testament what a great building it was. It was a great big structure, and it was a high point in Israel's life. They were a united kingdom. You may think of the northern and southern kingdom the way it was, but this was before the northern and southern kingdom. Israel was the land of Palestine, and it wasn't called Palestine until the Romans called it Palestine, so you got to get past that. So there were people there that were Israelites, and there were people there that weren't Israelites. There were Arabs there, but they all got along, and they all were under God's leadership. And it was wonderful. And Solomon did that for decades. Unfortunately, like his father, he had a taste for the ladies. Yeah. You remember the story of David and his shenanigans with King Bathsheba, how he fell and all the misery that brought. Solomon caught that. And so what he did, and this was how kings lived and made alliances with other countries, he would find a king or a sovereign somewhere and he wanted to make an alliance with them. So he would marry the women of the court, daughters typically, or granddaughters. And he did this hundreds of times. And he was smart in the ways of the world, but for some reason he didn't apply God's wisdom to this part of his life. And he did the very thing God told him not to do. God said, listen, you've got to watch it. You cannot worship other gods. Now you've already seen in the passages we read earlier that Solomon already had a weakness for this. Didn't get any better as a king. So we have this paradox where Solomon was good and wise and blessed of God and in touch with God's leadership and filled with the Spirit. And there's, at the same time, there was a part of his life that he refused to turn over to God. Just like so many of us. He was normal. Good guy. Man of faith. Decided that this part of his life would not be given to God. And he worshipped other gods because all those women from foreign lands, they brought their religion with them. And he allowed them to practice that. And other people began to practice their faiths. And there were temples and, and things like that. And altars to other gods. And Solomon, for his part, began to worship some of the other gods. In addition to the Hebrew god. And God doesn't share. So there was a real problem and he suffered the consequences. The end result is, and let me just spill the beans early in the story, that God divided this kingdom. The united kingdom that was so strong and impenetrable and such a demonstration of God's power was divided into the northern and southern kingdom. The ten tribes went to the north and two, two other tribes went to the south. So Israel was in the north and Judah was in the south. And that's where the divided kingdom came from, the divided monarchy. And they've never had peace since then. 
And that was because of Solomon disobeying God. So on screen are some of his legacies. First of all, a legacy of faith and wisdom. So, like I said, in part of his life, he did everything right. And he became fabulously wealthy and famous and wise and did everything right. And so there was this legacy of God's generosity. God was generous to him. He didn't take everything away from him at first. God blessed him in so many ways and taught the value of wisdom. All over the world, people learned of the wisdom of the Hebrew God. So that's part of his life, faith and wisdom. But the other legacy, the next screen please, is a legacy of suffering, of sin and judgment. The kingdom was divided. Solomon lost everything, not necessarily all at once, but he died knowing that he had destroyed this wonderful land and people suffered. And there was never peace again. And you remember your history. It wasn't too long, a couple hundred years, 722 and 587, that both northern and southern kingdoms were destroyed. And they haven't been united since. Now, today, because it's in the news every day, we talk about the land of Palestine and how the Palestinians don't think the Jews should be there and so on and so forth. This is part of where that mess comes from. The Palestinians, the Arabs, were, have always been there, but the Jews were there too. And so they're still fighting over that. And some of that fighting and, and antipathy towards each other comes out of this background. The legacy of sin and judgment has some lessons for us all. Here's one. God punishes sin. Always has, always will. Nothing's changed. That doesn't mean he's going to kill you. Or destroy your life necessarily. But when you sin, there will be something come into your life that will change. And you will suffer the consequences. Maybe not right off. But over the course of your life, your sin will hurt you. And hurt those you love. Another one is, no one's too big to fall. We've seen that in our own culture, haven't we? Big people, wealthy people, go to jail. They're in court all their life. So on and so forth. No one's too big to fail. Not even God's people. One other thing. God gives grace even after punishment. God allowed the people to survive for a time in the northern and southern kingdom. You see, they took part in the worship of other gods along with Solomon. And they continued that practice. And if you remember, the prophets continued trying to get them to straighten out. And they were simply doing what Solomon the king had taught them to worship other gods. But God gives grace, gave them a chance. You remember the rest of the story. Several hundred years later after the fall, they were released from their prison and they came back and they began to rebuild. The temple was rebuilt and that's where Jesus' story picks up. So they've learned these lessons. So these lessons are every bit as current today as they were. God punishes sin. When you sin, when you choose not to follow God's leadership, your sins will find you out. It doesn't mean you're bad people, but there's something to be paid when you ignore God. You're not smarter than he is, and you're not above his judgment. So be careful. You're not so powerful that you can't fail. And if you find yourself in the midst of judgment, that doesn't mean God's done with you. It simply means it's time to turn and give faith another chance. 
It's an old story, but it's a great story. Jesus wanted us to remember it. He said, when you guys get together, remember, last night on earth, when you guys get together and you eat, remember me. When you take the bread, remember that it symbolizes my flesh given for you. When you drink the wine, it symbolizes my blood shed for you. See, he wanted them to remember that they weren't just good people who followed a guy. They were changed people who followed the resurrected Christ. So today, we celebrate communion. I'm going to ask that the deacons come and get in their place. We do it here by having you come up and get your part. Now, you've noticed something different. We were running a little bit short and couldn't find any of those little cups with the sticky labels that you like so well. So, on either side, just so you'll know, you have a choice, because we like choices here in America. You have a choice. You can go to either side and get one of the little cups and fuss with those. That's all right. And in the center is a plate with the old-style cups and the old-style bread. Flat bread. Maybe good, maybe bad. I don't know. It's not the point. You do whatever you want, all right? Why don't you stand with me? This is for everyone who follows Jesus as Savior. It's also an invitation that you would come and join us by following Jesus as Savior. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence, for teaching us lessons that can change our lives. Help us to learn them and accept them. We pray for wisdom. We pray for life and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come join me, please. So Paul tells this story. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in a night in which he was betrayed, took bread. But when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus knew how simplistic people were. We tend to forget hard stuff and just remember easy stuff. The hard stuff is our salvation came by Jesus' crucifixion on the cross and resurrection. And our life is based on that. It's easy to say we're just nice people who are kind of religious. But that's not really true. That's not the point, is it? This life and faith that we practice came hard. Jesus died for you and me. And God brought him back from the dead. And that makes us Christian. The fact that we understand that changes our lives forever. And even in a world that's, that's a mess, there is hope because of that. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your presence. Give us faith and strength and hope for the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.